The Guardian. I'm Jonathan Friedland, and this is The Week in Review. Coming up, with Libya on the brink of civil war, we'll look at the man and the myth that is Colonel Gaddafi, ruling through an extraordinary mix of fear and farce. Also in the podcast, after Charlie Sheen, John Galliano, and Julian Assange's recent diatribes, we investigate anti-Semitism in the 21st century and ask why the hatred refuses to go away. And my dream school teachers, they do have the freedom to teach what they want, how they want, to inspire the young people. But the question is, is can some of Britain's best inspirational experts, can they actually inspire my dream school students to want to go back into education to change their life? He's done it with school dinners, but is Jamie Oliver about to go even further, revolutionising our entire education system too? This is The Week in Review from The Guardian. And here with me in the studio this week is Georgina Henry, The Guardian's Head of Culture, John Henley, one of our feature writers, and Casper Melville, the editor of the new Humanist magazine. Thank you all for being here. Georgina, let's start with you. What's caught your eye particularly this week? Well, I suppose the story about Rupert Murdoch being cleared by Jeremy Hunt to take over... Uh, the whole of British Sky Broadcasting, B Sky B, if the sale price is obviously agreed with the current shareholders that include him. Obviously, he's a big shareholder there, but the others too. Um, and I think the fact that it's just been waved through um, confirms his position really as the unofficial member of the British Cabinet. Casper, something that's caught your eye this week. Yeah, well, this is a story which has just broken today, actually, which is about the, the British Humanist Association have got a, a campaign to do with the census, and they're, they're encouraging people to tick the no religion box. This time, for the first time in the census, there's going to be a box saying no religion. Uh, and they're saying... The John Lennon box. Imagine there was no religion. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, the, the, the strap line for the ads uh, is, uh, if you're not religious, for God's sake, say so. And these ads have been knocked back from the, by the companies that have the, the display hoardings in, in stations, have said that they won't carry them because they think they're deeply offensive <laughs> and, um, and therefore uh, and they don't want to, do, to touch anything to do with religion. So there is actually a campaign going on on some buses. You'll see them around London and other cities. But the, the message has been slightly changed. It's not clear whether they were changed um, in the light of this. I don't think that can have happened because they're already up. So they're saying something slightly less controversial, if you think saying, for God's sake, is controversial. Uh, but, uh, you know, humanists are up in arms about it. Andrew Copson from the British Humanist Association just thinks it's pathetic. And um, it does make you just throw up your hands and say, for God's sake, that's offensive. <laughs> you keep <laughs> the, the almighty's name in vain. It may be all right for you, Casper, but really, I mean, it's too much. John Henley, what about you? Uh, well, yeah, and in mine, I'm afraid in another vein altogether, mine. I was much taken by the news that I think you could, it was little short of apocalyptic, frankly, that a lock of Justin Bieber's hair has sold for $40,000 on eBay, but even that was beaten into second place by the Centre County Daily Times from Centre County, Pennsylvania, which came up with what has to be the headline of the week. It's a slightly complicated story, a murder story, in fact, involving a Mr. Kermit Butts, um, a Mr. Ronald Heichel, and a Samuel Boob, but it did did yield us the unforgettable but true headline. 
Butts waves hearing in boob murder case, which I think we should all applaud. I'm so glad, John, because after the trivia brought to us by George and Casper, you've raised things, <laughs> brought taken us up market. We move, not for the first time on this programme, we move from that to matters in the Middle East. After the upheavals in Tunisia and Egypt, the last fortnight has seen the focus shift to Libya, where hundreds of people have been killed and thousands more are trying to flee, a country that seems to be heading fast towards civil war. At the heart of this is, of course, Colonel Gaddafi, a leader who is in a category of his own in world politics. Whether it's his eclectic wardrobe, array of sunglasses and penchant for umbrellas in all weather conditions, not to mention the golf cart and what one WikiLeaked cable referred to as his voluptuous Ukrainian nurse, or maybe the rambling speeches that go on for hours, it's probably fair to say that Gaddafi would be funny if this situation wasn't quite so serious. John, let's come to you first. There has been some anxiety, even here at The Guardian, with a memo from the Reader's Editor saying we can't just glibly refer to Gaddafi as mad or insane, that there has to be sensitivity in discussing mental health issues. Do you think the media and all of us are being a bit glib in deciding that uh, Colonel Gaddafi is a bit mad, or do you think there's evidence? Well, I think, I mean, it's very, very hard to say, obviously, because there there has been no medical diagnosis available to us. So you have to be careful, clearly. And I think also what you can say is that it's, um, it's very plain that there is method or at least efficacy in his madness. He may well be deploying what to us may, may, may look like madness for very, very good reasons and, and, and clearly is. I mean, it clearly impresses uh, it clearly impresses the Libyans and the, and the Arab world. But, you know, you don't get to be um, a dictator for 40 plus years um, without being extraordinarily ruthless and extraordinarily effective. And though that doesn't really rhyme with, with mad. The, the, I mean, Casper, the, on the Guardian website this week, the most read story was a quiz where you had to spot who was saying these various statements, whether it was Colonel Gaddafi or Charlie Sheen, uh, and because these seemed like fairly uh, sort of eccentric ramblings. Is, and you heard it there in what John was saying there, is ridicule the right response to a figure like this, do you think? Well, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of different layers here. Of course, if that were the only way, the only thing we were getting from the media, that would be wrong. We need to know the fact and the detail about Gaddafi. We need to remember that he's slaughtering his own people and he's a, a dangerous uh, man. On the other hand, uh, the, one of the things that's been playing in the background in the media is, is Ceausescu's famous speech where the crowd started bursting into laughter and burst the bubble. And that seems to be part of the story going on here with Mubarak. It happened very quickly. Um, it's happening less quickly here because he's backed up against the wall. But the idea that actually you do burst the bubble of fear by ridiculing partly, and, and that that's what the crowd in Libya, many of them are doing. Um, having, you know, and that was very funny, that, that thing. And I was, it, I was interested that they, it was picked up by, I can't remember who in America, who added Glenn Beck to the mix. Did <laughs> yeah. you see this? No, so it's, it's, a kind of, it's become a kind of, you know, generate a, a way to undermine quite a lot of bombastic idiots. It is true, I suppose, George. If you're laughing, then you're not fearful. Well, I was really struck by a piece by Kate Eddy earlier this week. I don't know if any of you read it, that uh, she talked about the fear people felt for him was just so sort of palpable whenever you were close to him. And yes, of course, I mean, you know, he fits the kind of image, doesn't he, of the Arab despot. And he's, you know, the mildest thing you could say about him is he's really eccentric. Um, But I think that sort of fear and the fact that uh, it is being punctured by what's happened on the street and so on in uh, in the uh, last couple of weeks. But I think there's an awful lot to fear still. 
Um, that piece I mean, reminded me a bit of those yeah, accounts you had of Idi Amin in the yeah, 70s, where absolutely. it's the sort of idea they may just suddenly act randomly and arbitrarily. Yeah, and it's the absolute power he wields. I think that's the thing. And that's the serious point about Gaddafi. You know, he's been in power for a very long time. And absolute power does do strange things to people, absolutely. you know. And when you have that kind of coterie around you, when you have your family now so deeply embedded in the way that the very, the very essence of that country, that does strange things to people. Well, it's an entire machine, isn't it? That's it. That, that just, that just that's a kind of to mix metaphors a bit. I mean, tentacles everywhere throughout the entire state. But but Casper is absolutely right. I mean, that was a um, it was an extraordinary moment when when Ceausescu mm. himself. That was what was amazing when about it. When you, when you saw his face and he, and he realised for the first they time... They were no longer on, frightened. Hang on, they're, they're laughing at me, you know. And that really was the beginning of the end for him. And, I, I, you know, obviously you have to be very careful with parallels, but psychologically it must be an extremely powerful factor. Well, what, what about Western attitudes to this? Because he was, in the period George was talking about, in the 80s, he was a complete pariah in the 80s and 90s. Then there was this detente, really, with him, um, with famously Tony Blair meeting him in the tent, the deal in the desert... Which of those two approaches do we think was the right one to the Gaddafi? Well, I mean, the the bringing Gaddafi in from the cold, the kind of so-called, recon- you know, well, it wasn't complete reconciliation, but, you know, the attempts to kind of reach out to him after um, all the stuff around Lockerbie, 9-11, etc. You know, pragmatically, that's obviously a sensible thing to do. And it's a lot more sensible than perhaps the sabre rattling going on now about some sort of military intervention again, which we'll, we know what happened last time. So it's very hard. And, you know, they are being absolutely hauled over the coals for it, as are any, as are any of the institutions that have had dealings with Libya and Libyan money. I mean, look at the row at the LSC in today's paper. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Did people go too far? It's one thing to have a sort of diplomatic rapprochement, yeah. but the head of the LSC, how Davis now resigned, because they were taking money, they were awarding doctorates they were doing live link-ups with lectures you're the person to say this because you know i don't want to flag up a great piece this week by jonathan friedland but maybe you'll cut this bit out (laughs) do feel free but anyway no i mean it's a really interesting thing can you only bend over backwards in front of him Mm. or can you actually threaten military action you know what's the kind of the middle bit that says something that you're not going to kind of really bitterly regret if you're whether you're had davis or um Tony Blair. I mean, it um, seems to me, I feel later. a bit sorry for Tony Blair in this, in this particular case. I don't often feel sorry for him. But, you know, I think that there was a moment at which the idea of bringing Gaddafi in from the cold, the fact that he renounced, you know, nuclear weapons, the fact that he was trying to befriend a, a, a Muslim state in the context of, you know, the war on terror, all of these things were, you know, there was a reasonable logic for them at the time. However, I do think that something fundamental, and for, for me it was about David Cameron rocking up in Egypt with arms dealers, um, a pre-planned trip, which was tried to sold to us as the idea that he was going there to, you know, make friends with the protesters and things like this. And I just, the fact well, is, at least Blair wasn't quite so overt. <laughs> well, well, no, he was very overt, really. But I mean, you know, I mean, in hindsight, of course, your country has got national interest, and you have to look out for those national interests, and you have to, you can't decide which leader you're going to deal with well you can't i mean you can but at the an absolute is it's level. so often driven by business isn't it I well mean, absolutely BP and, and libya arms dealers elsewhere i mean that's the problem you know that is the extreme of it it's actually not just driven by um is this a good thing 
And, um, that, and also, we've got a situation where in Iraq, what happened was they went in and tried to set up a democracy, tried to help set up a democracy. Now, what's got to happen is that democracy is going to be a long time coming and it's going to be hard work. And actually, the West and the UK have got to step back and let that emerge and then decide who their friends are. You can't just go into the but streets if, if, and if, if there are pictures of people who are rebelling against Gaddafi and they're being bombed from the air, people are going to start saying, well, governments have got to do something, aren't they? Well, that's true, but that's the real problem that we're in now is because I think it really is a sort of a once bitten, twice shy in, in, in that people are very reluctant to... Uh, I mean, the US Secretary was, was, was saying, reminding everybody of, of the fact which I think possibly got forgotten at the beginning of the week, which, which is that a no-fly zone begins with an all-out attack on a country's air force. You know, I mean, you can't impo- enforce a, a no-fly zone without totally taking out the, the target country's air assets. And, well, and are their we, air defence systems are, 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 and all Are we ready... Oh, is that a step that, that, that you know, we're ready to take? To go back to Gaddafi himself, and, and perhaps we'll just end on this, but w- w- what we know of him, and it's obviously going to be speculation, how do we imagine this ends? Can we see him doing like the president of Tunisia did and leaving the country and going into exile somewhere? Really I think we're, we're in for several weeks, possibly months, of effectively a, a, a split Libya. I, I mean, I think it looks like things can continue quite happily with basically the east and the west at, at relative loggerheads. Neither side is particularly willing or, or able to deal a knockout blow, I think it could go on for months. Like and what about Gaddafi personally? Is he a fighter or a quitter, as Mandelson might have put it? He's a fighter at the moment anyway. I think, I think uh, John's right, it'll go on for some time yet. And it's extremely difficult to, to really understand the nuances of what's going on on the ground. The Week in Review with Jonathan Friedland. You don't have to be Jewish to coin a phrase, or indeed a Jewish conspiracy theorist, to have noticed that the week's headlines have been unusually full of stories about anti-Semitism. Things began with Charlie Sheen, the highest paid actor on American television, as the star of the comedy Two and a Half Men, who issued a polemic against the programme's Jewish producer. And it didn't help matters when Sheen said his friend Mel Gibson had called to offer some sympathy at the axing of his show. Next, and according to Private Eye, Julian Assange claimed he was the victim of a plot by a cartel of Jewish journalists in the British media looking to discredit him and his WikiLeaks website. In Private Eye's version, denied by Assange, he claimed the heart of this conspiracy was The Guardian itself, confidently declaring that its editor, Alan Rusbridger, is Jewish. That came as news to Rusbridger. Most extreme was the drunken rant by fashion designer John Galliano, who was caught on film in a French cafe declaring his love for Adolf Hitler and telling two women he thought were Jews that it would have been better if their parents had been gassed. Galliano lost his job and he'll also stand trial for race crimes. Now, as I wrote in a piece for G2 this week, the last two years have seen a record number of anti-Jewish attacks in Britain. So why is anti-Semitism still so prevalent? Let's start with you on this, Casper, because you obviously look at religion and, and, and most Jews would obviously say being Jewish is more than just a religion. But anti-Semitism doesn't get reported does it in quite the same way as other forms of racism? Does it mean almost just by having this other word that it's seen somehow differently? Well, it's different in the sense that we, I mean, we criticise religion a lot. I mean, New Humanist and the humanist movement and atheists, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about religion. It, it's actually quite rare. In fact, it's never happened to me in my experience that we were accused of anti-Semitism. It's, this is partly because of the very sophisticated relationship between Jews and their religion. Um, you know, I remember a rabbi, a female rabbi saying to me once that the thing about if you're Jewish is you don't have to believe in God, you just have to do what he says. And I was like, oh, okay, I said, well, that sounds great. Where can I sign up? And she's like, well, we're not kind of accepting applications at the moment. So, you know, many of the most secular people I know are Jewish. And, you know, it's not really about religion. And, and in many ways, I mean, 
despite the fact that people are claiming, or in your piece you talk about how um, there is this idea that people claim uh, overblow the the accusation of anti-Semitism, but actually I don't know. I know many Jewish people, and they're not thin-skinned about being Jewish. It's around the question of Israel that this comes up time and again. I, I couldn't help but think of Baroness Warsi and her talking about Islamophobia and how that had become acceptable. I mean, in my world, I. She said it was a now dinner party. Dinner par- acceptable, acceptable yeah. dinner parties. I don't know what kind of dinner party she goes to. I don't. I don't go to the same ones. I don't hear much of that. Although clearly you can see. I mean, it's easy to see in newspaper headlines a kind of Islamophobic agenda of a kind, and we have to be careful of that. Now, with anti-Semitism, the way it seems to me, it's wrapped up with conspiracy theories in general. And I am quite amazed by the amount of people I know. Some of my friends, some people I really like and think are quite intelligent, who have who, who've. Be- fallen victim to conspiracy theories recently. And I wonder if that isn't really the connection here with anti-Semitism. The idea there's some force working behind the scenes, which, you know, um, someone just the other day cited to me, and I'm sure it was false statistic, the amount of Israelis or Jewish people who hadn't been in the towers when the towers came down as some kind of evidence that it was an American plot. So I think that that's really... We should really the that that is wholly untrue and well, there were lots it, of Jews who were killed in the Twin Towers, well, but it's it true is. that it runs around a lot, that claim, and, uh, and, and it's and central to the sort of Mossad conspiracy So I don't theory. think it's about yeah. a hatred of Jews or the, you know, per se, but it is about looking, trying to ascribe some logic to why the world is like it is and fishing around and the internet is full of all kinds of nonsense. And I think really it's because people don't actually know what they're talking about when they talk about Jews and the Jewish conspiracy. The Jews, they do know, they don't really know they're Jewish because they don't wear special clothes and they're just like you, perfectly, much like everyone else. And, and Anthony Julius, who's written this very extended and forensic study of English anti-Semitism, says very much what you've just said, which is that part of the appeal of it and why it doesn't go away is because it uh, seems to give you an access to an explanation for these very complicated things that happen in the world. And there's an explanation that's very easy and off the shelf. George, you edited Comment is Free for several years. And Casper's mentioned how sensitive this gets with Israel. Um, you sometimes had to defend The Guardian from charges of anti-Semitism, often related to articles critical of Israel. What's your take on all this? Well, in a way, the examples you cited right at the beginning, they're the easy ones. They're, they're just so off the wall in terms of kind of, you know, the ridiculous ill inform- I mean, you know, etc. So you don't need... The, the much more difficult thing, as Casper and you've both just said, is, is around uh, discussion and of Israel. And I suppose there's sort of two issues here. One is the need for extreme care Rand language and personally I as editor was extremely conscious of that the more complicated one for me I always found was this uh, sense that if you was was is were we disproportionately critical of Israel? Was Israel were we obsessed with Israel as much? More, I mean, in fact, that's been around this week. Just you know, has been around for the last few weeks because of the revolutions sweeping across. Um, the Arab world means that people are saying, oh, for once Israel isn't at the top of the agenda. Well, that just shows that, you know, all journalists were incredibly ill-informed about Libya. Look at the things that they don't know about it. And this uh, is all Nick going Cohen on. Wrote, Nick Cohen yes, wrote a very Nick trenchant Cohen column in The Observer and, on these uh, I saw yeah. Robin Shepard writing it this week and so on, a well-known critic of The Guardian and its so-called obsessions with Israel. I mean, my defence for that was if that shaded into accusations of anti-Semitism, I feel I robustly defended ourselves from that. I mean, The Guardian has a historic interest in Israel and I still I strongly believe that the the fault line running through much of the politics of the region remains that dispute over 
land in Israel and Palestine. So I think there were lots of reasons why we followed it. And of course, there were often extremely strong news lines to follow. It's a very difficult one. And I think you have to be extremely careful. And I think you have to re-examine yourself all the time. And the one thing about this debate is there are a lot of people studying. I've got nothing but praise for the CST. I think the Community uh, Security Security Trust, Trust, I think they're terrific. And I think that they always bring you up on on good points. And it's really good to have organisations like that. I wish that, that it was a bit more active. I mean, Casper's other point, looking at uh, other forms of um, racism, Islamophobia being one of them. That, that, that point about the um, uh, what the, that particular organisation does, I think they're relevant to a point I made in the piece, which is that the more you know, um, thoughtful uh, observers of this situation are careful to not say all criticism of Israel is always and by definition anti-Semitic. They pick out the specific cases. One of the criticisms that ran of the article I wrote on Twitter and elsewhere was that why haven't you talked about The Guardian here? And some of the things that were held up as examples by, for example, Anthony Julius, he mentions that play Seven Jewish Children by Carol Churchill or the poem uh, Killed in Crossfire by Tom Paulin, they were both published on The Guardian on its website. And so a few people said on Twitter, ah, The Guardian won't talk about its own, but we're now doing that now. <laughs> John Henry, you were um, in uh, of Paris as a correspondent for a long time, and, and anti-Semitism runs heavily as an issue there, and I think you wrote a book about neo-Nazism in, it's in a France. Very, What's the angle there? It's a very, well, neo-Nazism, I mean, they're very careful now. I mean, obviously you've got the, the Le Pen and his, and his, you know, Holocaust being a sort of a minor detail of history, but France has very, very stringent uh, uh, anti-racism and, and uh, laws and, and, uh, under which Galliano will be prosecuted it, it, it looks like um i mean it's been a i mean it's been an undercurrent in french society for a very 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 long time anti-semitism back to well before the dreyfus case and, and zola's you know magnificent jacques um uh, and but it's very rarely has it been with the, with obviously with the notable exception of occupation during the Second World War has it has it been of the kind of jackbooted you know really overt variety? It's quite a subtle thing in France, uh, anti-Semitism. What's interesting, I think, about the country and notice, what I found particularly interesting was, in fact, last year the number of anti-Semitic incidents recorded in France fell by fifty percent. Whereas here it they were to, much higher than they'd been. In France, it very much follows uh, essentially um, violence in 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 Israel and 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 the terror and Palestine and the territories. What's crucial to remember um, in this whole debate in France is that France has the largest population in Western, largest Muslim population in Western Europe and the largest Jewish community in Western Europe. Somehow you, 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 have, to, you, you have to keep those two groups living happily together, which is why there is invariably a massive spike in, in anti-Semitism when, uh, whenever there's a, you know, an intifada or a... Or, or a or well, that a, happens here too. And one thing that was fascinating in my conversations with the, this group, the CST, that we keep referring to who monitor this, is that they said it does indeed go up when there's trouble in the Middle East. And the language or rhetoric that's used in anti-Semitic attacks... Or the graffiti or the abuse that shouted will refer to the Middle East when that happens. But when the Middle East is out of the news, other themes cop up, and often they are. Uh, and so the example they gave was I thought this was so interesting when there was that row about Prince Harry uh, dressing up for a, in a fancy dress wearing a swastika armband. There were several anti Semitic attacks followed that, all playing on that, saying, you know, you lot tell our 
mock prince how he can behave and the Nazis had it right as if and the CST's conclusion is anti-Semites will sort of latch on to whatever's out there as an excuse because the hatred is already there and they just find a different form it's of expression of always, it's, it's, it's something that's all, it's, it's sort of always there I think and it's been there for so long and I think Casper is absolutely right that it, it, it you know very often it's, it's people casting around for somebody to blame and you know the, the Jews have been a target since the since before the Middle Ages, haven't they? And and but there's one particular little incident that I wanted to mention in France, which I think is is possibly and quite horrifyingly um, might be relevant. It was was this, this this terrible case of this young Jewish lad, Ilan Halimi, who who was kidnapped, picked up by a young girl and kidnapped by a gang called the Barbarians, Gang of Youths in 2006. And basically they kept him for several days and essentially tortured him to death. And it transpired afterwards that they had done that because he was Jewish and because this was a gang of young youths from the sort of very depressed, uh, very high unemployment, uh, very high sort of immigrant um, North African population suburbs. They, they'd taken him because he was Jewish and they, they were convinced that all Jews had to be rich, which is why they did it. I mean, the, 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 one of the only things that, most, that a lot of people seem to know about Jews and, and, and Judaism is, is how successful they are, you know, in the world, you know, by people who are looking for something to latch their hate onto. They can stick quite a lot of envy into their attitude towards Jewish populations because, I mean, if you, wherever you look at the Jewish populations, you find very successful examples of integration and, um, you know, not only in banking or anything like that, but in the media and in, in the world, you know, and, and that's a, a great sort of, I mean, that's why it's such a fascinating and wonderful and rich culture to think about but it also will attract lots of envy that is if there is a difference between this racism and other forms of racism it is that point which is in other cases you're often talking about very poor marginalized groups of perhaps immigrants in the jewish case it is a conspiracy theory of power and that does make it very different i mean people aren't going around saying you know muslims rule the world or that black immigrants into various countries rule the world rather it's a specific point uh, about jews do you want to just give us a closing line George? well i think there's a kind of a constant debate and um you know one of the one of the one of the ways it's discussed at the moment is has it moved away from people that are clearly so beyond the pale like the Mel Gibsons and the you know the kind of rants we've been talking about this week the John Gallienis ridiculous stuff into is it more acceptable with sort of you know liberal I mean and that's really the debate that interests me from a Guardian perspective and, and from people around this table and I think there is a constant need to keep that sort of line under review but it's not always where the critics of the Guardian draw it and that was something that I was very very conscious of too actually and and I think some of the criticism, for example, The Guardian got, I wasn't involved in it at all, but over the publication of the so-called Palestine Papers. Um, and I think that when you get a full-scale assault from the Jewish Chronicle about that, then in a way that sort of also complicates this line over what is legitimate Israel. And if you have a publication called The Jewish Chronicle, does that somehow make it more complicated in terms of, you know, do all Jews oppose us versus all people who don't think, who think we've crossed a line about Israel? And I think it's a really sort of important area to sort of keep constantly watching but not always concede every bit of that ground i suppose the point is that everyone agrees there's a line but no one agrees where, where it is, is. Yeah. exactly yeah. this debate will very definitely continue 
Now, pay attention at the back. It's 14 years since Tony Blair's famous speech about education, 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 yet still our school systems in need of desperate help. After Labour's academies and Michael Gove's free schools, now even Jamie Oliver has entered the fray. His latest TV series sees him take on a group of 20 teenagers who failed to get five good GCSEs, united by their lack of interest in schooling, and then to give them some inspirational teaching by some of the country's finest. Drama is taught by Uber actor Simon Callow. Alistair Campbell is the master in charge of politics. Professor Robert Winston takes biology. Double art is with Rolf Harris. And Dr. David Starkey tries to make history come alive. Now, John, Casper and Georgina, your homework assignment was to watch the first episode of Jamie's Dream School. John, intriguingly to me, you used to be a teacher before chucking it in for this far less noble trade. What did you make of the programme and do you think it can work? Um, I, I thought it was a fascinating programme uh, and I enjoyed it. I, I think ultimately, I mean, you'll, we'll have to see how, how, how it turns out uh, and, and which I think I've already got my eye on two children who are likely to be the candidates for those that will transform their lives. I think ultimately, for me, it's actually more about the people who the celebrities who came in to teach than it is about the children you mean they're the ones who are learning they're the ones who are learning and i think what they're learning is that teaching is an art and a craft and a discipline and it's something you have to learn and the the mere fact of being a world expert in your field of being inspirational possibly that usually comes for example with the fact that you're fairly used to, to having everybody who's listening to you hanging on your every word and when it comes to actually dealing with a bunch of kids who have for whatever reason switched off completely from the idea of of learning that they are simply not capable of of, of penetrating that and uh, you know I, I it's 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 a it's 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 certainly very entertaining uh, and i and jamie i mean i've got a i have a an awful lot of respect for you he may be slightly overexposed but but his the, the man's heart is absolutely in the right place and i you know i've, I've got a lot of time for jamie oliver but i think this one casper your view well, like, like most of these reality TV shows, you know, it's, I hate the idea of it. I mean, it's a dreadfully exploitative, uh, you know, it's a revolt, ethically revolting, uh, raises so many interesting questions, and you feel, but you feel a bit grubby afterwards. Now, why um, is it ethically revolting? Well, the point that John made, which is actually the point that is clearly the point, and it's what Simon Callow said in the Evening Standard. He wrote a piece about it yesterday. You know, it's about the celebrities, it's not about the kids. So the, ethic, the ethics here is, so what, what is the, this, this whole thing is set up as if it's there to help these kids and other kids like them, and it won't do either of those things. The one thing it does do for the kids is give them what they say they wanted at the beginning when Callow asked them, who do you want to be, what would you like? They want fame and fortune and that was perceived to be such a, a very bad thing and if only they could aspire to, to good values and this is the one thing they'll get from this program is they'll get a little bit of fame um so th- in that way i think it's ethically very dubious i like jamie oliver as well um i think it it'll, it has a similar but even less sort of effective relationship to the the school dinners thing it will have it will the school dinners thing had some impact in schools the, school, the, the food got better uh, this won't do anything to schools because 
Well, what have they done? They've got together the worst kids. They've taken a, created a class of the very but worst kids. what if it does kids. what John was suggesting, which is to raise the esteem publicly there is for teachers? Because if all these celebs are saying, you know what, I actually realise teaching is a really difficult thing and I can't do it, maybe we'll regard teachers in a different way. George? Oh, I don't think so. I'd love to think so, but I don't think so. Um, I mean, you know, I echo both of the others. That This is about two extremes, isn't it? It's about, I mean, you know, if you were going to pick a really effective history of teacher, uh, teacher of history, I, I mean, you just would not, knowing everything you know about David Starkey's personality, pick him would you um although funny enough i was taught by him at university level and actually he is a compelling teacher but he's also kind of you know it's the kind of roll up roll up get your tickets element because he was playing a bit to the reality of tv shtick wasn't he yeah and watching him trying to defend himself on question time last night you know he just always does that that is his personality do you think they went for that because they thought this will be tv yeah it's showbiz and in the way that's what makes it less effective than anything jamie's done before and i'm also like others great fan of his but there won't be any long-lasting effect because although the kids are really problematic or rather they have difficulties at their schools and and that means that they've picked the group that are it's just a sort of an unnatural matching isn't it of extremes of both both kinds so i can't say any longer i mean i've just been through the secondary school transfer process this week so it's very much on my mind education and also the constant kind of criticism of schools and teachers can't teach and so on so i mean i think it has been interesting to see how much of teaching is about how how do you reach children and how do you act and you know which is john's point really how do you reach children and it's not it's i mean it's interesting that to me that rolf harris is in a funny mm. way although you know i know he's the kind of joke person in some ways but you know he actually does yeah. really try to engage, engage them yeah. in a really mm. sort of quite interesting way and i think that's because he was a teacher wasn't he and so you feel that there is that kind of absolutely he's a great person i mean yeah. he's a, you know he's a good he's yeah. a good guy and yeah. the thing about the other celebrities is you know they're a random bunch of people they're not yeah. the finest teachers <laughs> they are the top they are the most famous people from quite tv yes in their field but what about <laughs> Because uh, it is something that Michael Gove is said to be looking at, the notion of hiring people, allowing into schools as teachers, people who don't have formal teaching qualifications. And he would, I suppose, want to say, look, there's a Rolf Harris, although maybe he's an exceptional case because of teaching in his background. But let's say Starkey did really well and people were turned on to history. That would be an ad for what Gove do, is do trying to do. I think it is incredibly hard for us to understand what's going on here we, we we a we all went to school at a time when you know and we went to the kind of schools i'm imagining where you know we wore uniforms we sat quietly we listened we wanted to learn we went gasper shaking his yeah, yeah, all right <laughs> okay but you know what this program and what what gove's whole approach completely fails to take into account is is the fact that actually whether or not a child is going to succeed at school is has, has so often got got very little to do with actually what happens at school i mean by the time they get there um and and it, it it's it's so much to do with 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 home uh, environment with 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 encouragement mm. with with stimulus with with you know the family that you come from the surroundings that you live in um you know that that, that whether or not you've got an inspirational teacher or a disciplinarian or or, or or whatever by the time they're at school very often the die is cast the program does begin with this killer fact that of those children who do leave school at 16 47 percent of them uh, don't have uh, five gcses i mean something is obviously going a bit wrong here casper what if it's not poor teaching what might it be i I think it's class i mean i went to a a mixed comprehensive school and um all the middle class kids stayed onto the sixth form all the working class kids left with the exception of one and that did not in any way pattern onto who was the brightest but that was a done deal and it was strictly because there were expectations i mean i didn't even i wasn't even aware of the expectation on me 
to continue through school and go to university. It was just so, such an obvious thing that I was going to do. You know, my parents met at Oxford, and my friends who lived in the uh, in the flats, uh, whose, whose dads were you know roofers, and you know they went to Chelsea, and they it was some, they would have had to struggle so hard to work hard, to be allowed to work hard or to be allowed to stay on. So, George, it's not actually about what goes on in the classroom. It's all this culture around its home, its expectations. I mean, obviously, there are things schools can do, even though uh, I think the the environment in which you grow up, parental influence, all the rest of it is just so important. Of course it is. And and what what, what you know when you arrive at school is, as I mean, that's the polytoimby argument, isn't it? You know, the damage is done by the age of five, or, Mm. or rather the good stuff can be done by the age of five. But I think that there have been improvements. We know there have in teacher training, um, in attempts to reward teachers better. Um, certainly, discipline is way back in fashion. I mean, if, if I, I just think it's kind of myth that actually discipline isn't taken extremely seriously now in schools, probably more so than when we were at school ourselves. And um, I think that Gove's stuff around the curriculum is very interesting about this idea that, you know, is it true that schools have been shunting children off to do BTECs when actually they could be challenged a bit more? I think that's an interesting debate. But, you know, I, I hate this sort of constant denigration as if, um, you know, everything's wrong. It just isn't. You know, there has been investment and there has been change, very much so, I think, in the last 15 the years. Is that all of us have been, that everybody has been to school and everybody therefore thinks they have an opinion about teaching. <laughs> but going back to this programme, I mean, one of the things, I'm not quite sure, I don't agree with Georgina that this won't have an impact on teaching necessarily because the real hero of the piece is the head teacher. That, um, that Jamie has picked up. You know, he's kind of a, got a working class Please accent. Tell me his name. Uh, um, <laughs> and, and what's so Too late, in- you've made your decision. What is now. so interesting is this balance between, you know, encouragement and discipline that teachers have to do. And we've hemmed them in in all kinds of ways um, that these celebs don't understand. You can't make uh, rude comments to your students like Starkey did. You can't swear at your students. But you I, can't I touch them. All of which you did at the beginning. This, this programme has been pitched as, can it help the children? Is this the answer? Yeah, and actually, the problem is, Jamie's intention with this programme doesn't seem to be happening. I mean, you know, God, we're one programme in, but it is all at the moment about the celebrity teachers. John, it, it, as George has been saying, in fact, we've all been saying, it does seem to be about their journey, the teachers, and, their, and whether they can hack it or not, and what they learn from it. What, what about with you? Why did you stop? Uh, I stopped for a very simple reason. I stopped because it was absolutely it was the high watermark of Thatcherdom. I was teaching in a comprehensive uh, in Fulham, uh, and I gave up the day that I couldn't set my O level. Was still O levels then. My O they were just moving into GCSEs. I couldn't set my O level French class homework because there weren't enough books for each of them to take one home. And at that point, I thought, well, that, that you know, forget it. Frankly. I think, the day is the internet, I, suppose. I think we're in a new a phase now. I mean, just one of the things I wanted to say about those, I know three people of my generation who are now going into teaching out of other jobs. So I think there is an enormous movement back into schools. I mean, the people, they realise it's a vocational job. They're giving up, you know, political PR. They're trying to find a career. They want a pension after, you know, being around doing not that much. So um, in that sense, I think that Uh, it is important to give an idea of what teaching is like it's not about the kids it's not going to help the kids necessarily but for this teaching is back in fashion in my generation of people who are looking for a stable work and something that they care about it's the most rewarding thing standing the actual business of standing in front of a classroom and getting it right is the most rewarding thing i've ever done in my life Now, finally, before we go, you may have seen that Steven Spielberg snapped up the rights to The Guardian's book on the WikiLeaks saga. All of us here would have only the briefest of walk-on parts. (laughs) But Georgina, John and Caspar want to know which Hollywood star, living or dead, would you like to play you in the movie? 
I'm going to start with you, George. Oh, well, uh, what about Helen Mirren? She's oh, older than I am. Good. She looks 20 years younger, which makes her looking younger than I am. Anyway, I think she's fantastic. <laughs> and firm but fair, I think that's good. John? Uh, well, funnily enough, many years ago when I was a teacher, when I walked into the classroom, the more rebellious children would start singing the theme from Indiana Jones and Temple <laughs> of Doom. So I think it would probably have to be... Who, uh, to who, apparently I bore a resemblance to Harrison Ford. Really? In my days. I, I, so think, I think you're I'll, flattering I'll Harrison for Ford. Him, <laughs> really. And for you, Casper? Well, I've got two answers. I put it out on Twitter, as journalists do these days, the, the, that very question. Oh, and good. The answer that came back was Gary Oldman. And someone actually sent me a picture. Do you remember when he played that kind of crazed Jamaican crack dealer with, <laughs> with white treadlocks and, and gold teeth? Well, I don't really look like that. The other day, though, someone said that uh, I asked if we'd met before because he was looking at me in a strange way. And he said, I feel I've met you before because you look just like Hugh Laurie. Oh, and there so, is something so about I'll Hugh Laurie. So I'll choose Hugh Laurie, I think. Yeah, I'm getting about Hugh Laurie. A bit of a I mean, I don't look anything like Helen Mirren, but I just love her to play me. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's right. the point. And obviously George Clooney would have to play me. In the meantime, <laughs> you can leave your feedback on this programme and listen to previous shows by heading to guardian.co.uk slash weekinreview. Thank you, Georgina Henry, John Henley and Casper Melville. And indeed, thank you to everyone who's been involved over the last eight weeks because this is the last in the current run of the Week in Review. Don't worry, we'll be back later in the year. Our producer is Ben Green. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.